Yes, hello there and welcome to Join Up Darts. This is an archive show, which means that I'm not here at the moment, but it's, it's all pre-recorded. But it does give you just a glimpse of what's been happening on the iTunes number one business entrepreneur show since we launched. Now, this show is different and you'll hear laughter, tears, shocking stories, real life turmoil, and of course, the kind of success blueprint that will change your life forever. If you want the dream life, then all the answers are here. Now, these are the old episodes, so to get right up to date listening to the latest stuff, then simply search Join Up Dots, click subscribe, and never miss an episode again. And of course, over at joinupdots.com, you can get instant access to our free 12-day podcasting course or loads of amazing free downloads to kickstart your own entrepreneurial journey, all made by my own fair hand. So let's get on with the show. You've got a lot of catching up to do after all. Enjoy. When we're young, we have an amazing, positive outlook about how great life is going to be. But somewhere along the line, we forget to dream and end up settling. Join Up Dots features amazing people who refuse to give up and chose to go after their dreams. This is your blueprint for greatness. So here's your host, live from the back of his garden in the UK, David Ralph. Yes, hello everybody. How are we all it's me again. It's me again, and it's episode 183 of Join Up Dots, the daily show where we speak to the motivational, inspirational, or the kind of creative folks. And we are going in different directions now. We kind of started in a very online way earlier in the series of shows, and we've now moved very much into characters and personalities which you may not have heard about before, but they certainly have got a fascinating tale to tell. And today's guest on the show is a man who, I'll be honest, when I started researching him, I thought, how the hell does he pack everything that he's doing into a day? Now, if you think that you're busy, then think again, as not only is he currently the head of English drama and media studies at an outstanding Catholic school in Hertfordshire, but he's also juggling the work of a freelance journalist, writing articles that regularly appear in 10 industry-leading magazines, They cover the automotive, aerospace, technology and travel sectors. He is a man in demand. His articles are read by over 12,000 subscribers in print and more online. But he's even more busy than that as the author of several best-selling books too. The Missing, Life of Sin and On Guard, the last blending his love and expertise of fencing. Yes, he could challenge me to a duel at dawn as for seven years he was a competitive fencer fencing is in his blood. So how does he pack so much into his life and still find that urge for consistent creativity? And if he could choose just one of his talents to do only, which one would he choose? Well, let's find out as we bring on to the show to start joining up dots, the one and only Mr. Carl Vadasfi. How are you, Carl? Hello, David. Nice to speak to you. And um, well pronounced as well. That is perfect. I know. I, I, I was practicing that. I was looking down at it all the time, thinking to myself, it's coming up, it's coming up, it's coming up. That's normally the bit, that's normally the bit when people stumble when they get to the surname. So where, where is that surname? It's like Hungarian or something, is it? It's Hungarian. That's right. Yes, Hungarian. So obviously your mum and dad were Hungarian or just one of them? Oh, right, yeah. No, my dad was Hungarian. My, my mum is Polish, so I've got a bit of a mixture. And they met in London um, a long time ago. Um, and, and yeah, I was born here and um, I have a huge mixture in my, my family. So, so do you sort of lean towards sort of that Eastern European kind of way of thinking? Or are you absolutely nailed down English? Um, maybe not the way of thinking, but certainly lifestyle in many ways. My wife is Polish, so I <laughs> um, kept kept um, Eastern European in my family even more. Um, and I spent a lot, spent a lot of time in in Poland, um, less so in Hungary. But um, for my latest book, On Guard, which is partly set in Hungary, I, I spent quite a bit of a bit of time there to prepare. Um, so yes, uh, Poland's a very important part of my life, my family, and uh, a great place where I recommend people should go if they want to see see an up and coming, you know, vibrant place with lots of great cities. So you played it safe, didn't you? Really, you you made sure that <laughs> your wife got on with the mother-in-law. Is is that how it worked? Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't know. <laughs> You're not being pulled on that one. You're not being pulled on that one at all. <laughs> she's, so, she's in the next room. She might. Yeah, we'll just. <laughs> so you are, you are, you're busy, aren't you? You know, I, I looked at that and being, you know, just being an author, that is enough. But you are squeezing in more than you, you should 
Carl, I'm going to yeah, say to you, you need to give one of these things up because you're doing <laughs> you're doing so much. How, how do you pack it all into a day? 3 a.m. I think is the best time of working for <laughs> me. Um, how? Yeah, madness. I don't know. This funny enough, you're speaking to me at the the busiest week I've ever had. Um, so I've got five articles on the go at once now over a two week period, while teaching full time, of course, and um, and trying to write the next book, which is you know page twenty five has been the page I've been on for quite some time now. So um, how do I do it with, with difficulty? Just pushing myself and and sort of. You have you have you have a target, and you've got to keep up to it. And eventually, you know, you 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 get quicker and um, and more you know, more capable of I think taking the pressure of it because there's a lot of pressure. But um, I, I you know I never say no to work. I always I always take what was offered to me, um, so I can keep using the skills and sort of developing myself as a writer. Is it? How can I say? Is it harder when you're juggling different articles at the same time? Would, in my way of thinking, it must be easier to just do one, move it on, do one, move it on. How do you jump from doing a bit on this one, a bit to that one, and keep keep the flow right? Yeah, that's hard. I mean, with writing, I'll, I'll do one at a time, but I have to interview a lot of people to get the content. So the interviews are all jumbled up simply because you're having to work at other people's availability so um how do i do that with great difficulty i record i make notes and, and i just rely on having having done uh, a good interview to get the right information so when i come back to it to write the article um it's it's all there but um it's it's something that isn't much easier than it was the first day i started it, i must say and how do you find the people to to interview you i i know that's possibly the hardest thing that i do um, constantly reaching out and finding people mm. and I'm not actually finding people that are instinctively sort of directed to the content of the show I can, I can go pretty generic but you've got to find experts who can fill in the blanks and your knowledge for your characters I suppose yeah well when it's when it's interviewing people for articles the, the, the content's technical so uh, I write for automotive magazines or um Post technology is another one. I'm doing some educational stuff now as well. Fortunately for that, I don't need to interview people because I, I have that knowledge already. But if it's cars I'm writing about, for example, um, you know, they rely very much on experts. Uh, those articles, so um, they're always forthcoming because you know, it's, I think it's lovely for anyone to see their name in print, whether they're writing something, whether they're being interviewed, and they're part of uh, an article's discussion. Um, it's hard when you interview someone and they answer your question with yes or no, and that's about it, and you don't get the detail. And you know, I like it when, um, unfortunately, it's most of the time uh, when people uh, speak a lot and provide me with a huge range of information so that the article can come together much more easily. It's when you have to sort of claw for the information that it's more difficult, but that doesn't happen often, fortunately. I, I find in my show, if I do an incredibly passionate, enthusiastic, lengthy question, because I really want an answer, I will then get a yes or a no in response. Yeah, yeah very typical. Yeah. I could, I could just say yes, couldn't I? And, that would <laughs> and I, I sort of scrabble around. I think, oh, what, what can I say now? What can I say now? But um, I've, I've only had one or two of those people. And then I went through a little phase of saying to people before the show, can you please stop? saying yes and no questions and then i realized that didn't work because i had that in their head so they went really <laughs> lengthy on everything that i asked them even when it was you know have you had a nice day today and they talk about everything they've been doing so yeah you've got to get that happy balance but it's not easy interviewing is it is, is that a skill that you have sort of developed or do you just do it as a kind of informal chat how, how do no, you do no, your interviews yes well, yeah, it's informal but i, I think i i well before the interview i always send set questions that sort of will guide me through the interview um, but very much it's uh, a case of responding to things people say because they don't always know you know everything I want from them so I, I will hear something and it will prompt a question in my head and that will get me the extra detail I'm looking for um, but it's it's not a, it's not a skill I ever had I'm not a trained journalist and uh, I remember meeting um, not very not very long ago a great editor um, who um, controls a, a publishing company in Hitchin, and uh, and and she, you know, pointed out to me that there are certain strategies for interviewing that if you're fully, you know, if you're trained as a journalist, you pick up. So I sort of adopted my own style because I came into it 
um, after I was teaching. And, um, and I found my own ways of getting by. But my, my ways are probably not the, the most um, helpful ways, actually. I'm sure they're, they're quicker and, and some more conducive ways to, to getting what you need. But um, I, I, I do it the way I, I have to do it because you know, I'm still teaching. I'm doing this. I'm still trying to write the books. And uh, I've, I've got a style now that does work for me. So I sort of keep it going that way. So, so let, let's take a, take you back in time because that's what we do on Join Up Dots. And and when you was a little child running around, were you always laying down and scribbling stories and writing, or was this something that has kind of come to the fore in later life? Well, when I when I was um, eleven or twelve, twelve I think I was, I, I had an English teacher. I remember her name was uh, Mrs. Light. That's an intriguing name. And she, um, she set us a story or something. I think it was probably the first time I'd ever wanted to write a story outside of being told to do something at school. Um, so what was going to be a, a, a short little piece we had to do for her, I decided I'm going to turn into a book. So I got this exercise book and tried to write a, a story at the same time. And, and this is maybe age 12. So um, some people might say this is a little bit risky reading when you're 12. But I just read a book by Sidney Sheldon who sort of in the 80s and, and around a bit before then was, was massive and he sold 250 million books around the world very lots of screenplays for film and TV huge Hollywood sort of writer and my dad introduced me to him he was quite quite rude actually at times you know he pushed the boundaries a bit and at 12 uh, uh, what, what, what kind of rude what kind of rude every kind of there is <laughs> what was the rudest area Carl the rudest area. There was there were plenty of naked ladies in was there. Oh, definitely. And and, and um, I'm trying to Google Sydney Sheldon now. <laughs> what, what's 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 the rudest one you remember? I, I only read a couple. I think Bloodline had a few. Yeah, a few. That's that's the one my dad said to me. Don't read this book. And then when he went out, I remember practicing my skimming and scanning skills, uh, <laughs> and and became very good at it. And just flicking through as a young boy trying to. Please see why. Why shouldn't I read this? You can always find those bits, can't you? As a kid, <laughs> very it, quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what it is. First page, boom, straight there. <laughs> Just like that. But the book I read um, when when this English teacher set this story to us was a thriller called The Doomsday Conspiracy, which, in hindsight, is probably quite a silly story. Actually, it was a sort of modern day thriller that had aliens in it so it wasn't it wasn't sci-fi but it, he did bring a sci-fi angle into it and i loved it it was just such a page turner it was so engrossing so i thought oh, I, well i love the idea of the title the doomsday conspiracy so i'm going to write a story called the something conspiracy and at the time i'd heard about the bermuda triangle and i thought all oh, the fascinating planes going missing and stuff so i decided i'm going to write the bermuda triangle conspiracy and tom cruise would star in the film and i wrote the Bermuda Triangle Conspiracy, and Tom Cruise did not start in the film. Um, but it was, you know, sort of 10, 12 pages of probably nonsense that, that really got me into it. So I enjoyed writing then. I didn't really do anything again with writing, though, until I was about 15, 16. I, wrote, I read um, the first Ian McEwan novel. Um, I, my, another English teacher at school recommended uh, The Cement Garden. She said, oh, this is a shocking book. You've got to read it. It's naughty. Lots of rude. <laughs> <laughs> there Lots you go. It's, it's always the oh, way to get us. It is. It is. <laughs> and I, so I read that and it was always like a car crash. I mean, it's, it's revolting, but it's that kind of thing where you still need to turn the page. You just can't stop yourself looking. And um, I thought, I really want to write a book like this. So I, I put pen to paper, literally pen to paper. I wrote 200 pages, a story which I called for no apparent reason other than the fact that the words were in the first paragraph, Testimony of Fate, and stuck it in a cupboard for several years. So at 15, I wrote the first draft of the book that became my debut novel when I was about, oh, I don't know, 23, I think it was. Um, and that was, that's called Full of Sin. And um, uh, some years later, I decided I wanted to write a book for sure. I pulled it out of the cupboard said oh, i've still got this idea so I'll, I'll go over it i realized at that point when i reread it that as a 15 16 year old i was really keen on big words that made no bloody sense whatsoever when they were stuck together and um and rewrote it into something coherent and that began the journey of actually really trying to do it properly and, and getting it published um through a company and trying to get an agent which is you know, the, the main 
still the main way, even though publishing is changing a lot now. Um, and yeah, trying to find real readers to read my book. Is, is, is it is it a creative urge that you have or is it the process do you, do you like actually constructing it like you're building something or do you lose yourself in the characters when you're writing it it's satisfying in the sense that you build something i mean i don't this, this is bizarre my, my wife asked me once when when she saw me writing something and i looked like i was in pain <laughs> and um and i don't actually enjoy writing the books um when it when i start I only enjoy it when I finish the first draft, and then I've got the built. I've got the material that's partly built, and I have to then finish it off and make it better. Uh, I hate doing the first draft. I find that so difficult, and and I don't get any pleasure out of creating the initial bits of the building. Um, but there's something in me that just makes me want to do it, um, and that is the finished product. So there's there's immense satisfaction in in getting to the end and to making something work when you know our first drafts i think are always shocking and uh, probably most writers find that um and and actually building your your foundations into something solid um and then seeing it you know the idea of holding the paperback in in your hands at the end that's that for me is the part of the creative process that is incredible and there's nothing like it so sort of holding a kindle doesn't light you up as much I can't say I don't like. I, I mustn't say I don't like Kindles. I don't like Kindles, um, but I can't say it officially because Kindle is the reason my book sold so well. So um, Amazon's wonderful in the sense that it got me a lot of readers. Uh, the Missing sold sixty thousand copies on Kindle, um, but personally, I've read two books on my Kindle, and that's probably as many as I'm going to read. There's something about the paperback that you know I just can't get away from. I, I haven't got a Kindle, but I've got this urge to have a bookcase full of 60 Kindles. And just <laughs> as an amusing statement, when people come into my office, they could see it and go, what a madman. It is, it is weird, though, with Kindles, isn't it? How, you know, they're, they're, I, I, I never want to go on holiday with more than two books. So I don't see why you really have to take 100,000 books. It, it, yeah, it they're, seems they're strange. Wrong. I know, they aren't. I think that means people who can read seven books in a week or whatever you know i think most of us go on holiday for a week two books is plenty or two weeks even i i could stretch myself to four books if i'm really pushing it but something once you've got a family as well you know there, there is more to do when you're on holiday than just read as well um but they're handy they're handy if you go away as a teacher you know i get fairly nice summer holidays so there are times when we spend maybe four or five weeks in poland and then taking paperbacks is difficult because i I read the most I, I do in the year in the summer, so to take you know eight books or something is a lot when you've done, you know when airlines limit you to twenty kilos or something. Um, Kindles would be great for that, I suppose, but you know I'm done. I think two two was my my max. But I understand their appeal, and I think they're incredibly clever, and I'm very thankful that they exist because they brought me you know the, the readers that, that weren't there beforehand. Do you, do you know, Carl, I kind of forgot you as a teacher and then you mentioned the five, six-week school holiday in the middle and the fact that you said I get a fairly nice summer holiday because my daughter is a, a teacher and yeah. it, it drives me mad. I say to her, you're having more at this part of the year than other people have for the whole year. Do you not think it's marvellous? And it's yeah. the bit that winds me up, and I don't know if you get wound up, is the fact that on the day that they should be going back, they do teacher training. And I think, how can you not do that within the five weeks? You could, couldn't you? Um, bear in mind, you know, I've got to say, it's certainly my experience of the five or six weeks is that I, I could spend three or so weeks of that holiday working. Um, it's never, I, I, I know people who break off completely during that five or six weeks. I can't do that. There's just too much to do. We could train, couldn't we, beforehand? I find I find training days really irritating, actually. You know, I'd rather, much rather get on with it than, than just listen to people tell me about getting on with it. So, um, <laughs> but they say training's vital for improving, and and sometimes things happen that are really useful in training. Um, but yeah, it would be nice just to get going you know, and start running straight away. Because I'm easing, I'm 44 now, I don't know how old you are, but I'm easing into, not irritable land, but there's certain kind of, the 70s was a better place to grow up and live. And I, when I was a kid, teachers basically were teachers. And they would come in and they would work the morning, go off down the pub at lunchtime, come back, and then that was it. 
And I never knew teachers to have to be trained. It was like you did the training, then you became a teacher. And I'm not sure where this teacher training... I imagine all my listeners out there that are teachers are spitting out their cereal in fury at this. But I do wonder why you actually have to have the additional training. So now I've got you in my grips. What what do they actually do on staff training days? Because my daughter won't tell me. Um, well... <laughs> I don't want to insult anyone here. No, there's there's so much great stuff that we do. I mean, the first day of the year is it's a setup day. It's you know it's great if you're a new member of staff adjusting to a new school, learning policies and procedures and stuff like that. If you've been there several years, you know you could just get on with things. Um, but when there are inset days during the year, those are the days when often external companies will come in and they'll do quite innovative things with you, new trainings, new theories, new ways of engaging students in the classroom. Or, I mean, the best kind of things will be the training courses you can go on where you can just network and get lots of ideas from other people. Um, there are organizations and professionals out there who, who, who dedicate themselves to, you know, working out ways to do things differently. And, and the, the key about teaching, I think, is you've got to evolve with the time. So it can't, it can't be done the way it used to be done. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not expected to be done like that now. Part of, part of your development, professional development, um, is is the idea that you know you're constantly striving to improve and find ways to get better at what you do, and uh, we get inspected and Ofsted is a horrible thing in this country. It's an irritant, but it's always there, and um, and your training days are often central to you know how do you perform for the current Ofsted standards before they change their mind and you know, make it something completely different. Um, they do go around in circles, so it's a bit stupid in that regard, but. The training is, is always really helpful for how you can engage children in a variety of ways. So, um, you know, a good teacher is a good teacher, but I think even the best of us need to try and find new things to, to bring into our classroom. Well, one of the things that comes up in the conversations a lot, when I'm, when I'm talking to successful people, and you're actually in the, the school education system, is that they feel that the education system is a conveyor belt for employment and it, it, it should be a conveyor belt to encourage and inspire and educate. Now, I know that you are in an outstanding Catholic school in Hertfordshire. Do, do you think that's that's a fair appraisal of it? Do, do you think that so many kids go in one end, come out the other end and then just haven't really got an idea of the passions that are in them, what, what they should be doing with their life? Yeah, well, that that whole sort of cath- um, sorry, Catholic, that whole sort of um, outstanding, good, satisfactory, whatever they want to call it, that Ofsted does. That's that's what that relates to. It was an outstanding rated by Ofsted twice in its past two inspections. That's all a nonsense in the sense that it's an inspector group that comes in um, for a day or two and, and makes a judgment based on a limited experience. You know, but I think it's important in instilling confidence in the children that go there you know, external people have come in seen the school and they say it's really great and you should have faith in you know, the teachers and being here and believing that you can come out of the other room with a great deal of success we have um, a, a vastly mixed intake in my school so we have a lot of students who come in with high academic standards but a lot of them come in on average academic standards and some who come in below as well the, the full spectrum um, and they can all achieve, and I think that's that's the message it gives them, and that's what I really like. Um, it does mean, you know, as you're constantly striving to fulfil these Ofsted standards, that um, in many ways schools become, as you just said, like an, a conveyor belt of try and pass your exams and try and fulfil criteria, and that's something I dislike massively. Uh, but I always, while doing that, because we have to, we have to get them through exams. We have to teach them how to pass exams. We have to fulfill off-state requirements. While doing that, I still will always try and find ways to get them to be passionate about reading, which is at the centre of all English study, um, and actually being you know, great communicators, which is what we're trying to teach them as well. So um, tick all the boxes, absolutely. We have to. There's, there's no say in it. But um, if, if they leave not liking books and not really being engaged with reading, I'm disappointed. And I don't follow tradition at all, so um, I'm not a teacher who will say, you know, you've got to read classics or something like that. If you want to read a great crime thriller, if you want to read a 
you know, a chick lit book if you want to read a, a comedy of you know modern writers from today. When you do that, any anything that grabs you is an excellent opportunity. So I encourage and use in my lessons as well books that potentially no other teacher in the country will use. I'll use I used a couple of weeks ago um, the opening of a new book by an American crime writer. Um, that was, was just establishing himself in this country. I, everything I find I think could engage the student I'll show. And the next day it was lovely to see that one of the boys came in and said, oh, look what I've got on my Kindle and he'd already bought the book. So it does work. People just have to be brave and try it. Well, well when, you, when you look at the education system, did you see that programme that Jamie Oliver did a few years ago when he took kids that had been expelled or told not to go to school because of issues of some some degree and he put them in a school where he had celebrities famous people who were to teach them so he had like jamie oliver did the cooking he had daily thompson okay, doing sure. diving simon callow doing english rolf harris doing oh, right, right. and yeah, all that kind I of saw, stuff yeah i saw a bit of the callow one i think um not much no because i can hardly watch any telly because i'm doing too much <laughs> yes. but um but no, but that would be great. You know, I, yeah, I seem to remember Simon Callow getting very animated and frustrated about things. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, I don't know if that works. I mean, you've got people who are good teachers are teachers who have spent a long time doing it. And um, it's really hard to train as a teacher and jump straight into a classroom and be amazing at it. You go through a, a difficult opening year, a difficult even in some cases two or three years before you really get established. And every time you move schools as well, you've got to reestablish yourself. So it becomes difficult from a starting point, wherever you are in your career. Um, I mean, I'm lucky that, that I have a very comfortable day when I'm teaching children. They respond really well. Uh, but I left my, my first school. I've been only in two schools. I left the first school after seven years. And joining my current school, um, I, I found it hard. And, and I had very you know, seven very, very comfortable years in, in quite a challenging school initially. So um, everyone, I think, finds it difficult until they they're known by the children you know if, you, if the children don't know you you've got to, you've got to build the relationship build the trust and then uh, and then you can you can you know have great lessons every single day and and they can respond amazingly um teaching with regards to what you're teaching you know, i'm teaching shakespeare at the moment to some some classes and uh, for a lot of students that's that's not the most appealing of things and and uh, but they, they're enjoying it they're coming out with some really great great work so I'm, I'm going to play you first of our motivational speeches because it, it really does say something to me. But as somebody who is involved with the kind of the, the, the gestation period of education when the kids are moving through finding themselves, um, I'd be fascinated to see what these words mean to you. This is Jim Carrey. My father could have been a great comedian, but he didn't believe that that was possible for him. And so he made a conservative choice. Instead, he got a safe job as an accountant. And when I was 12 years old... He was let go from that safe job, and our family had to do whatever we could to survive. I learned many great lessons from my father, not the least of which was that you can fail at what you don't want. So you might as well take a chance on doing what you love. Now, two questions on that. Number one is, do you think that is the message that we should get out to the kids today? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I wish somebody had said that to me when I was younger. Absolutely, yes. And the second question is, have, have you taken a risk in life or has it just naturally been a progression? Have you gone with the flow? I've, I've changed. No, my, you know, where I am today is, is not where I thought I'd be. Um, it's not regretful at all because um, I'm doing three very different things that all, all bring um, a lot of satisfaction. Um, no, I think uh, at the age of... I'd, Quite me. I was at my French University when you were 21. So, 21, um, I wanted to go to film school. I loved films uh, at a very young age. My, my dad actually was, was an actor when he first came to London. He trained at RADA. And uh, so, it's sort of just always been in the family. He wasn't acting when I was, was born. He acted in the sort of 60s, early 70s. He did some films. He was in The Ipcrest File with Michael oh, Caine. Yeah. He, he was a doctor who tortured Michael Caine for the last half an hour. Um, and some other stuff. He was in a Bond film. Um, so it was just something that was always there in my family. So I really wanted to do something. It'd be involved in film in some way. And there was a great film school I found in California. 
Um, and I really wanted to go, really, really wanted to go. The, the, the fees really scared me, the idea of getting so into debt at such a young age. Um, and then bizarrely, and I don't really know how I established this link, I, I also, I love drama and acting and stuff. I'd, I'd been in drama um, lessons at school and um, I decided, okay, so that will be too expensive. I won't do that, but I'll go to drama school in London, which is actually incidentally very expensive. So it was very stupid thinking on my part. Um, but I ended up going to drama school, um, sort of following in my dad's footsteps, not not to RADA, unfortunately, but to to a, a, a place called the London Centre for Theatre Studies, um, and had to, yeah, I was, I was all set to do that and go there. I, I'd never auditioned for a drama school in my life. I went and auditioned, and I don't know, there was a thousand people applied in 35 places, and they chose me bizarrely. It was a complete surprise, and... Um, I ended up going there, um, but I deferred for a year. I didn't go when I got in because because of the money side of things. So that's how I fell into tra- into teacher training. Actually, I, um, I looked at the qualifications I had. I looked at my options. I thought, oh, okay, you could train to teach and learn a career. You know, have a career path there that if the drama doesn't work out, you could go down. Um, and things just happened that ultimately turned me towards teaching and turned me away from the drama. Uh, I met my, my wife, so then girlfriend, but she was in Poland, I was in England, I was going to drama school at the time, and in the end I just had to make a choice, you know, what, what do I do, do I carry on teaching, which I was qualified to do by that point, or do I go fully with the drama and take every risk that there is, you know, massive, massive uncertainty with that, it was 85% unemployment, so was the statistic I heard back then in the UK. Um, and then probably never, you know, not have the relationship with the person I wanted to be with then, who was abroad, because I would have had to travel all the time. Um, so I fell into teaching full time uh, in the end, and, and I'm married now, very happily, and we live over in, here in the UK. And um, my life could have been very different, but then actually, you know, got a lovely young daughter now, so um, I'm I'm pleased the way it went. Uh, it was never planned; it was all very unexpected, and. Um, Every corner had something different around it that I wasn't expecting. Well, which is the beauty of life, isn't it? That, and that's really the theme of the show, that you, your path is kind of directed by fate in many ways. But it's oh, what you do with it at those times and those decisions that can lead you either to huge success or despair. And I've, I think what I'm finding out on these shows is the people that get, get success... They purely get success because they try more things than other people and they have a certain amount of luck. They have a certain amount of talent, but I I can speak to them on a daily basis and I go, well, how how did this happen? Really? I'm not really sure if I come back. It's it's like, I, I, I don't know. It's too many things joined together that make me get to that point, but they've done those things. They've done those hundred million little things to move on, and that is what makes a life fascinating, isn't it? Totally. If you don't, if you don't try as many things as you can, you're just never going to know. And you know, you might say, "I've got this plan," and you, you're so well narrow-minded. That's all you go for. You know, you might completely block everything else out, and then you might get there, and you might be disappointed with it. So, I think um, being very open-minded all the way through and taking every opportunity that comes at you and and if things don't work out well so what you know you've tried you've gained an experience from it that's a great thing and and you said the word luck i mean that's key as well i once um i met the actor rafe fines once and uh, he was doing some work with my dad in preparation for a film and uh in which he had to learn how to fence so my dad was coaching him for quite a period of time and and i i asked him something about his his uh film roles How, how did you get into film well, how did you become successful or something like that? And his answer it was a one-word answer. It was luck. That was it. And obviously the talent is there and the training is there and the opportunities are there. But ultimately, you've got to get lucky too. You know, um, with the books, there's definitely been a degree of luck. I mean, how the missing sold, the number of copies it did, it, things just fell into place naturally. I had a lot of authors supporting me. I had a huge number of people supporting me on Twitter. And it wasn't stuff that it wasn't a planned advertising campaign. It just fell into place. It was lucky, you know. Um, the journalism, well, I, I, I didn't. I got into the journalism by by, by luck too. In many ways, I, 
I wanted to, uh, I was teaching, I taught for a few years, I thought I'd really like to try um, and and apply my creative skills in a different way. I love you know writing, I like it, I, li- I like language, so I thought well, I could see if I might be able to get get a job in um, in editing or something and, and you know come out of teaching for a couple of years and see what that's like um, and I spent two years just applying for lots and lots of jobs and in the end I, I met uh, this um, publishing company's managing director and, and he said to me oh why don't you write for us and he, he put me in touch with an editor and I did an article and to this day later what was eight years later I'm still writing for them and this, the majority of my work is for, is for this brilliant company in Surrey um, and uh, about 10 of their magazines I write for, and that's simply because a man who, when he was young, someone had given him a chance, decides, decided that he would give other people chances, and he saw my very unusual CV, which had no journalism experience in it at all, and um, called me in and said, yeah, come and talk to me, and, and just offered me this great opportunity, so, and, which I'm still you know, benefiting from today. So, it's, so it's do you do you, do you do you love your life when when you look at it? Do you kind of go, yes, this is really you know, if, on your deathbed, if you were <laughs> to die tomorrow, and hopefully that's not the case. But um, if you were, would you go, yeah, I've had, I've had a good run here. If it happens, you can't broadcast this, okay? <laughs> um, well, yeah, you know, I, I'm not satisfied yet. There's still a lot more I want to do. You know, I think. I'm I'm really pleased I've had these great opportunities and these great experiences and I've helped a lot of people. It's lovely teaching. You bent, you affect so many lives, you know, every year, hundreds of young people's lives and and they remember you. You know, I can see some children I taught where well, they were children, now they're not, you know, ten, nine years ago and and they still remember you and they remember you fondly and, and that's a lovely thing. Um, writing a book. That's read by people. I mean, there are people in Australia who have read it, you know, and, and India and America, and that is just great. I mean, well, it's not great if they don't like it, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and they let you know if they don't like it. All oh, those reviews are scathing, but you know, fortunately, the majority are really good, and then people have enjoyed enjoyed my books. But that's really lovely too, because people, you know, I've, I've read lots of books and I remember them, and so you you go with people for their life, and then articles too i mean people keep magazines don't they and people um learn from them i think they're three great great pathways and anyone who's considering teaching or trying to write a book or trying to get into journalism in some way jump straight into it go for it if you can um but at the same time don't restrict yourself and you know tr- have an open mind and take other opportunities that come to you um but there's still loads more to do you know uh, lots more ambitions with writing and, and things that have to be achieved and I won't stop until I, I get there. Well, when, when you meet these old kids who were kids that you taught, do they <laughs> still call you Mr. Vadasfi? Do they? They call, you, they call you Sir. It's bizarre. I always say no one's Carl just calling Carl. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, but then actually I had a very bizarre experience when I first started teaching. Um, I, was, I was teaching in a school in the same town where I grew up and we used to have school consortiums then they sort of died out about two years ago but it was when about three schools in the local area got together every so often and they did training together and they offered students lessons so if if for example one school couldn't put on a subject for various reasons they could travel from one school to another and have a lesson there um so my school was in my first school was in consortium with the school where i was a student when i was you know 11 to 18 and uh, within my first couple of years of teaching, we had to go to meetings, and, and my former English teacher would be there, and I'd walk in the room, and I it would be hello, Miss. I just couldn't call her Claire; it was bizarre. And she would always say, "No, call me Claire." Uh, so I know where it comes from. It's it's a very weird sensation to after years of calling someone Sir or Miss or Madam or whatever, Mister or Missus, to to be asked to call them by their first name. Um, <laughs> Because I, I, I met my teacher, I, I, when I was five, I had a teacher, Mr. O'Brien, and okay. he, he was a little bloke with a beard, and I'm now 44, and when I was about 40, I walked into a pub, and I thought, oh my God, it's Mr. O'Brien, and okay. I couldn't work out how I'd gone from five to 44, and he looked exactly the same. 
it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they just hadn't aged at all. And I went up to him and I said, hello, Mr. O'Brien, you don't remember me. And he obviously looked at me like, no, I might have remembered you as a five-year-old, but not as a 44-year-old. <laughs> Little bit different. And yeah, he, he kept on saying to me, you know, oh no, call me Bob, call me Bob. And I was going, okay, Mr. <laughs> O'Brien. Yeah I, I, yeah, I couldn't do it. Even though I bought him a pint, which was a bit weird. And I was having a drink with this man. But, um, yeah, it, it's fascinating how you can't break from that, that training. You, you've got to call them Mr. or Sir, don't you? You, you do, bizarrely. It's, it's, it's the most odd experience. Um, I mean, Facebook and things like that are great now because you can get, you can get in touch with anyone, can't you? And, and they send you messages and requests and stuff like that. Um, and, and to suddenly hear from someone a few years later and, but, but they'll still say, hello, Mr. V, or something like that. It's just, again, Carl is out of the question for some reason. Um, but you still insist on it. And eventually it might happen. Who knows? <laughs> Keep trying. So just before I play the words of Steve Jobs. Now, actually, I'm going to play them now, but I'm going to ask you the question afterwards. This is Steve Jobs. Of course, it was impossible to connect the dots looking forward when I was in college. But it was very, very clear looking backwards 10 years later. Again... You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. Because believing that the dots will connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart even when it leads you off the well-worn path. And that will make all the difference. So the question I was going to ask you is, do you have a plan in life or is it very much like Steve Jobs talks about that things happen and you just go with it? Um, I have ambitions, which I suppose you could say is a plan, but, but they're, how, how you reach the end ambition, you know, uh, how it gets completed is, is completely uncertain. So now I think you do this and that, maybe this is the dots part, you do this and that and you try and do whatever you can to, to fulfill things you want to achieve and, and eventually you get there. I mean, I, my, my biggest ambition at the moment, and I try it with every book I write, is um, I, I would like one of the big five publishers to pick it up and that's an ambition I've got. But how I get there is, is that we have very various routes to get into that sort of standard. So um, I've got to write another book, I've got to finish it, got a good idea I think for the next one. Um, you know, you, you, you've got to look at your backlist and hope that they keep grabbing readers' interests and, um, and you can use those as, as ways of attracting attention to, um, and keep learning about, you know, different ways of, of making writing better. That's certainly where I'm going now with this. And while doing that, trying to see how, you know, my teaching career can develop too. Um, I'm in a sen fairly senior position now. Uh, which is great, and, and how I can how I can affect you know students in the most positive way uh, by 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 leading a team of teachers. Um, but I, I don't have a, a step by step plan. Absolutely not. It's it's going to be a, a case of reacting to to opportunities. I think uh, everyone should just grab every opportunity they they can get, and that's the message I give very often to students who come to me and ask for advice. Those who are maybe thinking about going to university or, or something like that. Um, Take every opportunity, go for it. I, I think that is the the title of this show, to be honest, because I think that's the thing. I think what 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 makes people stuck, Carl, is the fact that they think that the opportunity has to be the end. It has to be the one that nails everything for them. And I say it time and time again that you can be in a crappy old job and get another job, and if it's crappy, get another one. You know, it's doesn't have to be the perfect job and it, when I transitioned from my nine to five which was a very good job to this I did loads of stuff in between because I had to pay the bills and I had to cover it and there were certain times when I'd be thinking oh my god did I do the right thing I had this career I had this I had that and stuff but I knew that I was able to take advantage of those opportunities that you're talking about and I think people get stuck because they think it has to be the one. Do you, do you think that? Yeah, very much so. Um, and that's, that's the story of my books, actually, in fact, because, you know, it released, uh, Full of Sin was released via, initially by a small independent publishing company. 
Um, I wasn't able to find an agent for that one. It's a very dark story and very. Um, it wasn't part of the trends that was going that were going around at the time in fiction. So with the second book I, I wrote, I, I went to crime fiction, which is very popular, was very popular, will continue to be very popular, um, and and try to find an agent for that as well. And, and the traditional way is, is to you know have an agent who can try and find your publisher. And, and obviously the aim of every book you write is to get it published by the biggest publisher possible so that you can have the maximum exposure to try and get the biggest number of readers possible. Um, and after... after uh, substantial amount of trying i found uh, an agent one of one of london's top agencies uh, took me on very very luckily um and and the idea was that the missing the book that that was picked up by the agency was the one that was going to go to all the big publishers um and i was very keen for that to happen uh because that would have been then and now which is what i think people want you know we're often very impatient um, but in discussion with my agent about the possible next book, when we came up with the idea for On Guard, um, which which is also a crime thriller, but but involves fencing and Hungarian history and links very much to my family history, um, she felt that there was a really unique selling point to that book because no one's really writing crime with fencing in it, and it's it's an unusual sport, and because of my knowledge of it, it could be quite a quite a quite a, a unique take on things. So she convinced me to not push the missing to the big publishers in the hope that you know, we'll release it ourselves through her company, we'll get some readers to, to, to be aware of who I am, and, and I'll write the next one uh, on guard, and that will be the one that will go to the big publishers. So she asked me to be patient um, when, when obviously I, I, like I think anyone who's written a book, would probably be wanted to just go for it and really try and have the, the, the main goal achieved straight away um and i listened to her and actually i mean it, it it worked so incredibly well because when we were trying to get just a handful of readers to get my name out there we ended up getting sixty thousand, and we ended up having a top 10 bestseller um and that wouldn't have happened had we done it the way i initially wanted it to be done which is probably the way most people would want it to be done which is let's go for the biggest thing now there's a huge risk in sending to to the big publishers and them not taking it on because ultimately then you leave yourself with only one other way to go. Um, so by by not doing it the way I think I felt I probably would have wanted to do it initially, um, we we yeah we had great success and um, sometimes I think you do have to just be patient, not not want to get the end goal straight away, and that could come in the long term. And that's what we're working on now. So. It would be lovely now to get the big publisher having had the initial success and that success hopefully will help as well attract the big publisher too. I, I wish you all the best of success on that and I, I know, I have no doubt that you will achieve your aim. I was talking to our friend Peter Stewart-Smith um, the other day and I gave him a, a a character that I thought was really useful and I'm going to offer it to you as well. And it's, oh, go ahead. It's this really sexually attractive podcaster called <laughs> called John and his surname is Up Dots, so it's John Up Dots, and he he gets to sleep with loads and loads of ladies willy nilly wherever. Uh, can can you build that into your character? Do you think that's going to work? Well, in the new book that I'm writing, the the villain is actually I'm really I'm empowering a female character, so I'm going to have a female psychopath. So one of them could be. I don't want to sleep with one of them. No, she could be, and she could kill you. I guess. I <laughs> know. Uh, I, I need victims, I'm afraid. It's not like a praying mantis thing. I I like to do. Oh, I've, I've I've given it away now. It was me I was talking about. Well, evidently, but you, you know, you could have your fun, uh, but you would then have to be punished, I'm afraid. That's as is the convention of crime <laughs> and and marriage as well, I suppose. Well, why not? <laughs> Well, just before we say goodbye to you, um, I'm going to send you back in time. And this is part of the show that we call a Sermon on the Mic. And if I could send you back in time to have a one-on-one -on -one with your younger self, what age would you choose and what Carl would you speak to? So I'm going to play the words now. And when it fades, you're up. This is the Sermon on the Mic. With the best bit of the show, the sermon on the mic, the sermon on the mic.
So uh, 33-year-old Carl says to 16-year-old Carl something along the lines of this, I think. Um, you're studying for your GCSE, so your exams in the UK. You're a lazy little bugger. Pull your, <laughs> pull your socks up and start working hard. Try to achieve as much as you can. And then when you go to university, carry on the pattern. Do exactly the same thing. You know? So you work hard for your A-levels to get into a good university. Make the right choice. Um, i.e. pick a course that really interests you, don't take the safe option, which is what you did, and, um, and, and then really, really push yourself to excel in it. And hopefully by loving it, you're going to excel anyway. Um, don't wait until it's too late. Well, not too late, until it's late in the day to start working hard. You, know, you can do well if you work hard late, but if you work hard the whole time, you probably would do a little bit better than you did, and then dropped my teeth terribly then, so I apologize. <laughs> but I think the message is, Carl, work harder and achieve more. <laughs> Carl, how can our audience connect with you? Um, so there's, there's a website, carlvad.com, it's Carl with a K. Uh, Twitter, that's Carl Vad. Surprisingly, I have to cut my surname, surname short because it's just horrendous to spell. Um, Facebook as well. If you do Carl VAD, I'll be the first one because there's no one with a name like that on there. Um, and then uh, I'm on LinkedIn, but I really don't understand LinkedIn. So you're welcome to search and view or whatever it is you do on LinkedIn. But it's delightful to hear from anyone who's read the books or who wants to read the books or who's interested in journalism, read the articles, wants to read the articles. Anyone who's interested in learning more about teaching as well, be delighted to help anyone who's interested in secondary education or indeed English education in this country too. Well, we will have all the links on the show notes. Carl, thank you so much for spending time with us today, joining up those dots. And please come back again when you have more dots to join up, because I do believe that by joining up those dots and connecting our past is the best way to build our futures. Carl Vadasvi, thank you so much. Thanks, David. Good to talk to you. David doesn't want you to become a faded version of the brilliant self you were once. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Join Up Dots, brought to you exclusively by podcastersmastery.com, the only resource that shows you how to create a show, build an income, and still have time for the life that you love. Check out podcastersmastery.com now. David doesn't want you to become a faded version of the brilliant self you were once to become. So he's put together an amazing guide for you called the eight pieces of advice that every successful entrepreneur practices, including the two that changed his life. Head over to joinupdots.com to download this amazing guide for free. And we'll see you tomorrow on Join Up Dots.